0: Hello and welcome back to the Land and Climate Podcast. My name is Bertie Harrison-Breninski and today I'm talking about how the oil industry uses paid research to obstruct regulatory change with Agatha Boone-Four at the European Campaign Group Transport and Environment. Agatha led a recent investigation into a fossil fuel funded research group known by the acronym CONCAWI, which stands for Conservation of Clean Air and Water in Europe. The investigation demonstrated how Konkawi undermined EU attempts to regulate a carcinogenic pollutant called benzene. As a result of this scientific lobbying, the final limit was set ten times higher than intergovernmental agencies had originally proposed.
1: They are aware that you know some of the things they're saying doesn't fit within the actual scientific evidence, and they are aware that that can be considered as disinformation.
0: I began by asking Agatha to introduce us to what Konkawe is.
1: So Konkawe is a research institute that was set up by the oil industry in the 1960s. Their formal registration document show it has a non-profit. It is a non-profit, so it's supposed to be an, an association that acts and produce research on environmental and scientific topics. But looking into the membership, you see that it was funded and it's still being funded by some of the main EU and U.S. oil industry, namely ExxonMobil and BP and Shell. And it covers quite a lot of different topics. It does things from, you know, monitoring emissions, uh, technical tests on cars, from publishing wider report on the impacts of air pollution in European cities, for instance. So it has quite a, um, a broad scope. Really, this investigation was trying to look into the motives and also the influence and how this research was used in a wider policy context.
0: What led Transport and Environment to focus on this one? Is it the most significant? Is it the biggest of these kinds of industry funded research groups or are there others? Was there a particular law you were looking into?
1: Yeah, I think the genesis a bit for this research was quite wide. I was aiming to look into the scientific proxies and bodies that act in support of the oil industry in the EU in the current context, which was the review of the European Green Deal, which is a major legislation on climate and environment. So I was really trying to see which scientific bodies uh, were supporting industry position, which were the main ones, which networks of research they were using. Who funds them? I was trying to see whether this scientific disinformation strategy was still present in the EU currently. Most people know, you know, there's things happening sometimes ago in the US or there's some sort of questioning on the science, but do we know that it's still happening now? And do we know it's still influential over EU regulation? I think that was the main question. Starting with this Broad questions, like a lot of investigative topics, you talk to people, you see, you try to look to dig into the funding, look at the studies that think tanks and association produce. And for that case, I think Concare was known within, let's say, the wider climate movement as a research organization that has ties with industry and that does technical studies in support of some of the industry position, but it was not unveiled until the time we publish this, that they do proper scientific disinformation. That's something quite different. On the question, is it one of the main ones? I mean, the budget is quite significant. It's still 16, about $16 million budget. So I can't answer the question whether it's one of the main ones. There's several think tanks and NGOs that act in support of the industry right now in the EU. But as I would say it's not insignificant, especially given the topics uh, they're really active on, which is health and impact of pollutants on people's health. So it's quite it's quite an important topic.
0: That idea of legitimacy is quite interesting, really, isn't it? Because I mean Kunkawe don't go to huge lengths to hide the fact that they've got industry ties. I presume from what you're saying that they're fairly consistent in supporting industry positions. Why do you think other stakeholders don't see through the motivations behind different opinions that are coming out in research?
1: I think there's a common belief amongst policymakers that every topic has two sides and that, you know, it's fair to listen to the concerns of the scientists, of the NGOs, civil society. But at some point, you need to listen to the industry and what they have to say. And from that perspective, reading industry funding research is legitimate Inviting them to discuss this research is legitimate. And I think that's why they were also, they had privileged access. I think most people and most policymakers were not necessarily aware that this was pure scientific disinformation. And I think it's an important distinction to make is that sometimes, you know, industry fund studies on from a pure economic point of view, but they don't necessarily attack scientific, a long, strong scientific consensus on the topic. And I think that's the line that Conquer will pass. And I think it's not necessarily the case with most research centers working for the oil industry. I think this is a definitely clear case of how techniques of spreading doubt on independent scientific research is still used as a tactic by the industry now to perpetrate and extend the life of some of their products, whether it's, you know, chemicals, fossil fuel, trying to delay some of the key environmental policies aimed to protect people and workers in that specific case. But yeah, I think this dist- distinction is important between studies funded by industry and pure uh, scientific information. And most of the people, I think, weren't aware that that was the case. Now, I think there's also reluctance from a lot of regulators to act properly and try to cut some of the ties. I'll give you an example. Concawe. does not only produce research, they also have secured so-called observer position, which means you can attend meetings of key scientific bodies in charge of informing whether it's international or EU regulation, namely IARC, which is the cancer agency that is linked to WHO, and the ECHA, which is the European Chemical Agency. Within those institutions, they have secured an observer, which means they know what science has been discussed, they know what threshold or what regulation is likely to be imposed, you know, either in some member state or EU wide level. Some people within those scientific circles, they are aware that, you know, some of the things they're saying doesn't fit within the actual scientific evidence. And they are aware that that can be considered as disinformation. But they act within a wider framework, which is the conflict of interest framework of those organizations, which says it's okay for an industry participant to attend this meeting and interact with the scientists as long as they have declared conflict of interest and the ties with the industry. So that's kind of accepted from the start. So I think it's, it's this whole kind of system, you know, of how the EU and institutions and uh, scientists working to unlight regulation how I and mean, within what conflict of interest framework they interact with the industry i think that's the answer to your question is is this is still acceptable there's been a, a strengthening of this framework uh, in the past years i think there's still insufficient disposition on that behalf yeah
0: are they just never publishing the stories that don't give the right results or
1: yeah it's, it's, that's a really good question i think we can you use it, this information as a proper word to describe what happened because at the time where Concareway published their research, there was decades of scientific evidence on the health impact of some of the products which were researched, meaning the impact of benzene, the first studies on you know, how benzene caused cancer, especially leukemia, were produced way back in the 1930s up to 1970s in the US. So we're talking about decades-long research, decade long scientific consensus on a topic. Also, disinformation because there is a discrepancy, and that's also similar with climate files, between what the industry knew internally on an issue and what they portray, what they say on the outside. On the Benzin case, the American Petroleum Institute hired a consultant decades ago in the US, which said the only safe level of benzene exposure for workers is zero. Now in, in the 2020s and 2023 in the EU, concaway funds research that says, you know, only high level of benzene are, are risky. So there's a clear discrepancy also on, on to, as researcher what we know the industry knew in and when, and what they say now. That's really important. How do they, actually does it? How does this deformation works? There's lots of different tactics. You mentioned one is high level academics or researcher or doctors on a topic and make them write like a tribune in the media or something, given their opinion on a topic. That's a tactic. But the one that I have specifically identified as part of the research is more to fund what they call critical reviews. So it's not proper study, proper research in the way that most researcher works. It's more a kind of literature review that they produce afterwards, also in academic journals. So it looks like it's the same wording. It looks like another scientific journal, but it's more a study done by consultants, so not necessarily an academic specialized in that field, highlighting a lot of different bias that they identify in the original research and saying basically there is this bias number one, number two, number three, and we can't really trust the consensus on that issue because they're still doubt. And that's a traditional and quite systematic way of attacking science that we have documented on several issues. Clear case was the issue of diesel emissions, but it was the same with air pollution more widely, and the same with benzene. They replicated the same form of attacks in the sense of literature reviews done by consultants. So in that case, it wasn't like they hire or they funded massive million euros programs to do alternative research. It's more that they paid consultants that were either working for the industry before. So some of the consultants were working within the R&D or Epidemiology Department of some of the EU oil companies before, and now producing those critical reviews that they would get published in scientific journals. So when I'm saying this, ultimately it also comes down into the rules, the conflict of interest rules of those journals and which research they accept, which publications. Some have really strict rules, some don't. I think within the academic sphere is quite known which industry journal might have what they call industry ties and which are a bit more strict on that. The issue is, again, because it's quite separate worlds, the policymakers, when you see reference and a study that was published in Academy journal, they don't necessarily, they can't necessarily distinguish between the ones that are credible, respected within the field and the ones that are just published a lot of things, especially and including things that are funded by the industry. So I think that's quite important also how they can play on that slight difference of knowledge between the people within the field and the research and the people outside who might just think, oh, that looks like uh proper research yeah let's trust this you know
0: the rules that you mentioned that some journals have the stricter is that things to do with funding and conflict of interest or is it rules about methodology with the research or what what kind of rules might that be
1: yeah so there's several rules that might affect the acceptance of a paper by a journal one is the funding it's not only the funding of the research it's also previous ties That the researcher, or in that case, the consultant, might have had with industries. So, for instance, if you worked for Exxon 10 years ago on a project, some journals might consider that still affects your, not necessarily your judgment, but that might affect the outcome of your research. Some might prevent this paper from being published, but most of them would accept it on the condition that those ties are being disclosed. So, that's also a good way for researchers like me to work, is like in most academic journal, you have a section which acknowledges some of the funding and some of the previous ties that the the authors have had with the industry. That's related to the author and the funding. But of of course, you also have a solid research uh, has been done, the peer review process. I haven't checked for that specific one, whether what rules have been, you know, followed by this journal, but they don't always have the same rules. And for most you know, researchers and academics I've interviewed, the literature reviews that were performed by the industry had several flows from a methodological point of view and might not have been accepted by other respectable journals.
0: And as well as interviewing academics and looking through those papers, you got access to private correspondence when you were looking into this story, right? Maybe you could talk us through the benzene case now a little bit and what you learned about that while you were looking into it.
1: So benzene, uh, again, is a pollutant that is present naturally in natural phenomena such as volcanoes or fires, right? It's present in crude oil and gasoline. It's been used by many industries in, as a solvent, especially in the U.S. Uh, in the 70s. And it's been linked to a lot of different health issues, notably cancer. So in the US, it was a major issue and still a major issue because there's a lot of oil and gas extraction there, and there's a lot of workers, but not only workers, affected by the contact to these pollutants. One estimated that about five million families are exposed to the the negative effects of benzene in the US. In the EU, in the specific framework of and case of workers, it's about one million workers that are daily exposed. To benzene. It's mostly workers in the oil industry, but also it can also be workers in the car industry, workers uh, working at refineries, you know, petrol stations, manufacturers or goods that contain benzene. This is still the case. It's slightly less meditized and, and popularized in the EU because of the difference of the geography of extraction. So a lot of the oil extraction happens on mainland in the US, whether in the EU it's not as known. I think the detrimental effects of benzene are clearly not as known by the population and by the workers as it is in the in the US. Now, the first kind of standard that was issued in the US to protect workers was issued in the late 70s. At the time, the average level ex- exposure was about one ppm, as its particles per million. But what happened is that the oil industry uh, launched a legal campaign to prevent that threshold to be implemented. So it lasted about 10 years for that threshold to be implemented in the US. There's been cases already reported of study being funded million dollars budget by the US industry. It's called the Shanghai study that they funded and that was funded by the industry to cast doubt on the link between cancer and benzene. And that's also contributed on top of the legal action to delay the first standard to protect workers in the in the U.S. In the EU, it's a quite different context, as I described, because of the geography of oil extraction, which is not as present. So there's been also regulation to protect workers around the same, until last year, was about the same level in the U.S., around one ppm. So that means the EU or the US hadn't reviewed these standards for the past decades. So you can imagine also uh, the discrepancy potentially between the scientific evidence on the impacts of the chemical that had, you know, evolved a lot and the regulation that hasn't been changed. But so in about one year and a half ago, the EU was considering revising its thresholds as part of the wider revision of a directive that protects workers against, you know, several chemicals. And what we documented as part of this investigation is an influence campaign that was launched by the oil industry with the support of Concaway that acted as their research, you know, institute to really prevent the EU from strengthening and lowering the threshold. So, what we found evidence of is literature reviews that Concaway produced or funded to attack scientific literature that was published showing that benzene had really negative impact, not only at one ppm, but way below that level. That was really important. So, that was part also of a narrative by the industry to at some point recognize benzene was linked to cancer and leukemia, but only at higher level, and there's clear narrative saying we don't need to lower the thresholds. The current regulation is sufficient. There's still doubt in the science on the impact of benzene at a low level. One of the consultants working for Concaway had secured an observer position for the meetings where the, one of the main bodies, scientific bodies within the ECA, the European Chemical Agency, was in charge of doing this literature review to basically in a report say, okay, what that's the state of the literature, of the scientific literature on the health impact of benzene. And what we found evidence of is that once they tried to influence that review, sending studies that have done contacting the secretariat of this scientific body showing all latest work doesn't show that there's an increased the risk at low levels. And finally, when they didn't succeed in preventing this scientific body from proposing a lower threshold, which was 0.5 ppm, so down from 1 to 0.05, they contacted directly the political bodies in charge of the political negotiation on the file, mainly the directorate for employment within the commission. And probably, but we didn't uncover evidence of that, probably there were other contacts with other political policymakers in charge of revising the file. And basically within those exchanges with the staff of the commission saying on the same line of argument, the l- review that was done by the ECA has flows and cannot be trusted. Our own studies shows that, you know, there's bias in X, Y, Z. people who don't necessarily have the background in science to distinguish between a proper study and another one saying, OK, see, we have published this work that show this by this researcher, which is known in the field, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, Digging, you know, into records of the meeting, digging into the um, impact assessment that was done in support of the file, doing several interviews with people present at the meetings where this new threshold were decided, or analysis that the EU ultimately decided in favor of thresholds that are really close to the industry position, mainly, you know, about 0.5 ppm in 2024, and then 0.2, two years after what is clear is that the industry probably didn't win just on the basis of its scientific arguments. They also won on the basis of the cost arguments. So they also produced reports showing it would cost the industry a lot of money to basically implement this new regulation that would protect workers more. So the new regulation clearly say is to uh, as many you know fires. <laughs> it's kind of trade off between the health impact and the damage to the industry. But what is quite interesting, in my opinion, is that I, I've also talked to researchers and people within the U.S. administration that were in charge of the new uh, standard at the time that says most of the time the industry also provide number on costs that are not necessarily based on the reality. And they can also just make the case that it's going to cost them a tons of money. That's not necessarily the case. And I think within the wider context where this threshold was decided at a time where the oil industry also made a lot of profits during the energy crisis. And this type of decision was made under the radar, I think, quite a lot. This fire wasn't mediatized, wasn't publicized a lot in the EU. I think this is something that's quite clear from the research, is that most people, and I'm not even sure EU workers, are aware of the risks posed by basing on a daily basis to their health.
0: And some of the quotes from the scientists working in the agencies, the non-corporate scientists, seemed understandably very upset about this. I mean, do you think there's any pathway to lowering those limits in the near future? Or is that kind of set in stone now?
1: No, I don't think it's set in stone. Um, there's definitely a lot of individuals, especially in the European Parliament, that were a bit you know, upset with this far the way it was negotiated, that want to increase the regulation in the future. But, you know, it's always dependent on political negotiation and the state of politics within the parliament and the mamad state at a given time on this topic. So I can't remember exactly when the um, revision date was set up for this specific file. I think it's going to take a few years, though. And my experience, and usually what happens with those files, is once you have this agreement between the industry, the labor unions, the member states, etc., it's, it's quite hard to reneg- renegotiate the political consensus soon after. So although there's probably political willingness to take action and revise the structural up in the near future, I think it's unlikely, given the lens is taken to agree on the text and also the political negotiation that happened. And once the industry and the labour union agree on a specific level, it's quite hard. And that's actually been said to me by source within the parliament. It's quite hard to challenge what was decided whenever there's an agreement on on those. Yeah.
0: You mentioned at the beginning that one of the things you started out wanting to look into is seeing whether things had improved since the 70s and 80s, I guess, when you were aware that Fossil fuel lobbying and money funded a lot of research and had a lot of impacts. Did you get any sense looking into these research organisations whether this kind of academic and research influence of the fossil fuel sector has it got more or less over time um, Or when interviewing other academics? Is it a larger problem now than it used to be, less of one?
1: It's hard to answer that, that question because it would require one to have quite detailed understanding of all the money and, you know, the actors involved in that. And it's quite a huge fear. You know, you talk about disinformation in general done by the oil industry, whether I dig into a really specific story, which was on benzene. Now, what's pretty clear is that it's not going away. It's still, despite the overwhelming evidence, all the investigation has, done, has been done. I mean, the case of talking about, the report on the Shanghai study that was done by the U.S. Media Center Center for Public Integrity back in 2014. That didn't prevent Konkawe from doing the exact same things uh, 10 years after in the EU. So there's also a worry that all that research that we do, uh, either journalists or society researchers, it is impactful on some level, but it doesn't prevent the industry from continuing using the same playbook. I don't know if this, the scope is the same, but I think the, the tactics remain the same. You've seen other examples. I mean, the fact that, for instance, glyphosate has been licensed, has been extended despite the overwhelming scientific evidence, the lawsuits, all the media uh, articles that were published on this specific issue. So most people know about the dangers of glyphosate. It's not the case with benzene. It's not the case with a lot of different chemicals. I think this tells you quite a lot about the ongoing influence. Of the industry. There's been a lot of campaigns to try to cut some of those ties. It's not just consultants, it's also PR working for the oil industry, the law firms, all of those proxies that still support the playbook. Some have been successful, most of them haven't. I think probably the reputation of the oil industry is a bit more damaged than it was in the 17s. And all this research have at least enlightened, and I, I hope most of people know that those tactics have existed because there's a level of sophistication now, maybe that doesn't exist before, meaning even for research like me, it was pretty hard digging into those, you know, scientific papers, trying to find the bottom line and trying to find whether there was proper research or just something that was completely insane. But you can have hints, you know, one of the key things, for instance, is the narrative. So they use a lot of the same wording, such as sound science. So that's one of the things that you know when I was researching Concaway spread out, it was like, oh, they're using this reference to sound science. And we know from previous research that it's been similarity hasn't been used by tobacco pesticide industry before. So you can have hints if you if you've read a bit about that. I hope that could be the case also for the general population. If you read a bit about that issue, you can and you train, and not just the general population, but I hope policymakers at some point can also have a training into this. You can have hints and distinguish a bit, you know, some, some things you can notice when you know a bit more of those tactics. I think it's still influential and it's still happening because of lack of training, a lack of awareness for sure on most of those tactics.
0: My thanks to Agatha Boon Four for coming on the show and to Vasco Kostovsky for our audio production. You can find Transport and Environments Investigation linked below, along with some further reading. And if you enjoyed this episode, do remember to follow or subscribe, and leave us a review if your favourite podcast platform allows that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in a fortnight.